It is so good to worship the Lord in this place, uh, even when sometimes we know we're out of control. It reminds us that He's in control, right? He is in control. I hope you have your Bibles today. If so, grab that. I hope you have a, got a copy, too, of our outline when you came in. That way you can take some notes. Uh, if you have that, bring those, put those out. Uh, turn to Nehemiah chapter 5 as we get ready to dig into God's Word. You know, at the beginning of the year 2000, Enron Corporation was a Wall Street darling. The company seemed to have everything going for it. It had $100 billion in revenue. It was on the cutting edge at the time of things like energy trading, streaming and video on-demand services, video conferencing, and other innovations that we now take for granted. On top of that, they were a corporation that sought to help people advance. It had targeted recruiting programs at historically black colleges, actively promoted women and minorities to senior positions and to their board, and committed more than $28 million to equity investments in underserved communities and entrepreneurs. It truly seemed to be a model company doing many important things. However, in the year 2001, just a year later, the company filed for bankruptcy, which at the time was the largest bankruptcy in American history. Now, what caused such a huge collapse? People may look and say, well, something in the economy must have changed to cause that. But that was not the case at all. The collapse of Enron had to all do with internal corruption. Enron's collapse was primarily due to a combination of unethical business practices and financial fraud committed by its executives. <clears throat> the company used complex counting methods and off-balance sheet partnerships to hide its massive debt and losses, presenting a fake picture of financial health to investors and regulators. And once the truth began to emerge, it didn't take long for the investors to lose confidence, and it quickly led Enron's demise. <coughs> now, I share this example today to set up our message because we need to be aware of something. We need to be aware of internal threats. You know, last week as we looked at Nehemiah, we talked about how to deal with discouragement. <coughs> I could have entitled that message, How to Deal with External Threats, because what Nehemiah dealt with in chapter 4 were those outside who were seeking to keep them from building the wall. However, what we will see today is there is another threat to rebuilding. It might actually, in the long run, be a much greater threat for what we're going to see today is that if we're not careful, internal threats can keep us from completing God's will. In fact, let's begin reading in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, for there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Now, let's pause here to set the stage. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been on somewhat a roller coaster. I mean, in chapter three, we saw the people come together and begin to build a wall, and so there was excitement in the air. People are working together, and progress is being made. However, we moved to chapter four, and the bubble burst a little bit in a sense that opposition arose that sought to discourage Nehemiah and the people from building. However, we could be encouraged that Nehemiah didn't let the discouragement deter the vision that God had given him. And we could say at the end of chapter 4 that the people were still together, even prepared to fight together if necessary in order to see the vision through. But now we get to chapter 5, and what do we see? I saw one commentator who referred to what happened in verse 1 as a strike. In other words, some of the people stopped working and said, conditions are bad and something needs to change. 
Specifically, we see one group of Jews who are complaining against another group of Jews because their condition put them in a place where they were hungry. At minimum, they, were, they expressed a need to get grain so that they could eat and stay alive. Maybe the posters that they held said something like, no grain, so we abstain, right? Well, no grain, so we're going to abstain from working. In other words, we're not going to work until we get more grain. Possibly the equivalent of what, we would, what would happen today when people would say, until we get a raise, we refuse to work, right? It's some, something like that, all right? Let, let's read a little further, though, and see what the issue was more fully. Verse 3. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. And we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Now let's try and get a full picture of what's going on here. Uh, From the first two verses, it would be fair to say that the people coming to the city to rebuild there was simply a lot of people. And since things are still in disrepair, there's just a lack of resources. In a way, it makes sense that there would be these practical needs that exist because of limited resources. But also when you consider to build the wall, the people had to take a time away from their normal activities, which would include tending their farms and other sources of income. You could assume that there would be a strain on the people and their resources. However, here as we read, there is also a famine in the land that made things worse. Now, there's simply nothing people could do about a famine. It simply had to be dealt with, or we might say endured. (coughs) Because of the lack of resources and the famine, the people were having to mortgage everything they owned. (laughs) Excuse me. My sinuses, I think, were fine this morning until my daughter cried, and I started crying, all right? Anyway, they they had to mortgage everything they owned in order to have enough to eat. Then on top of that, something we don't know anything about, and I do say that tongue-in-cheek, the king had apparently imposed a high tax rate, so they were having to borrow money to pay their taxes. To make matters worse, things were so bad, they were having to have their children enslaved to their debtors because they had no other recourse to pay what they owed. Now, we may not relate to all that is written here, but my guess is with the inflation that we've experienced in recent years, there are more than we would like to think who find themselves barely hanging on, maybe carrying balances on their credit card for the first time. And and some are looking at their children and saying, you know, as soon as you can get a job, as soon as you're old enough, you got to go get a job to help pay the bills. The situation in Nehemiah's day, no doubt, was bad. And and look at Nehemiah's reaction in verse 6. He said, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Now, Nehemiah heard their words. He was angry. And maybe our, our first reaction to hearing that he was angry was this. Why is he angry at the people? We might have a tendency to read this as Nehemiah being angry with the complainers. But you have to understand he wasn't angry at them at all. You know, I think in our day and time, some at least have a tendency to look at people who go on strike and to be mad at them before they understand their situation. I'll say this, sometimes I think strikes are probably justified and sometimes they're not. It depends on the circumstances. In the case here in Nehemiah, we must understand why Nehemiah was really mad. He wasn't mad at the people who had stopped working and started complaining. He was mad at those who were taking advantage of the difficult circumstances. In a moment, we'll see that in this instance, 
those who are taking advantage of the circumstances were not people from without, but actually people from within. Look at the next verse, verse seven. It says, I took counsel of myself. And before we go any further, let me give you a quick leadership principle here from Nehemiah, okay? A good leader doesn't just act spontaneously, but instead takes time to consider the proper course of action and then responds. You know, I'm not sure how long this took, and the Scripture doesn't say. I'm also not sure what self-counsel looked like, but if I had my guess, based upon what we've seen so far, Nehemiah took some time, he prayed to the Lord God, he sought wisdom, and then carefully considered the complaints and its validity. And after having a clear picture of the facts, he acted based upon the understanding of the situation. Nehemiah definitely did not ignore the situation, but he wanted to make sure he acted correctly and appropriately. If nothing else, I'm sure this self-counsel gave him a moment to cool off before acting because how many would agree that there are times when we need to cool off before we respond, right? Who needs to agree we need to take counsel of ourselves sometimes before we respond to something, right? All of us, especially when we're angry, because the Bible tells us in Psalm 4:4, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. We're told even a similar thing in Ephesians 4:26. So Nehemiah took time to cool off and counsel himself. But then as a leader must do, he took appropriate action. So let's keep picking, uh, let's keep reading, picking back up at verse seven and following. He says, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Now, Nehemiah goes to the root of the problem and speaks to the nobles and the officials. And the reason he speaks to them is because they were the ones in power and influence. And they were, in this case, the source of the problem. The ones who should have been taking care of the people were actually exploiting the people. Now, we don't know anything about that in our day and time, do we, right? About those in charge exploiting the people. I mean, of course we do. If you're like me, you continue to get frustrated with those who are in power acting more to improve their lives versus the lives of the people that they are supposed to be leading, all right? So let's continue to see what these nobles and officials were doing. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. Now, as Nehemiah confronts the leaders with their wrongdoings, particularly their selling of the Jewish brothers into slavery, all they could do is stand still and be silent. They had no answer because it was apparently clear that what they were doing was wrong. Nehemiah continues. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. You see, not only had they been selling their brothers into slavery, they had been charging high interest on loans that they could not pay back. So the nobles and officials were acquiring the property of their fellow Jews, and in the process, they were getting rich at the expenses of others. Now, in case you think the Bible isn't relevant, stop for a moment and consider how today we still, all right, see the same thing going on just in different ways, right? Right? It, it, it seems to me like, you know, as we live in what I believe is the best country in the world, 
The freedoms that we have compared to most places around the world is remarkable. However, we would have to bury our heads in the sand to fail to recognize that often those in power get rich at the expense of the common person. Indeed, folks, the more things change, the more things stay the same, right? Thousands of years later, we still see the same problems exist. Now, the thing I want us to see the most is what the real problem was. The real problem was a failure to obey God. In fact, understanding the depth of what's going on here requires you to have some biblical knowledge. A failure to understand the scripture leads to a failure to understand the depth of the problem here in Nehemiah 5. When you understand God's word, you understand that these nobles and officials were directly disobeying the laws that God had given the people so that they would thrive and be a people who stood out above all the pagan nations. Let me explain. As God gave his laws to his people, people who are to be distinct in the world, who are to live in a way that exalted God, God had said this to them in Deuteronomy chapter 23. He said, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. In other words, God had made it clear that for those who are part of his people, that they were to treat each other differently than the world. They were to live in community where the people cared for each other. This in part meant that when one Jew loaned to another Jew, they were to charge no interest. This would allow those Jews who are struggling to make ends meet, be able to, to meet those needs, yet not find themselves in such a great debt that they could never get out of it. We also see Nehemiah address the fact that God had given directions for the Jews to redeem other Jews who had become slaves to foreigners because of their poverty. Here's what it says in Leviticus 25. And if a stranger or a sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or the sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him. In other words, God did not want his people enslaved to pagan nations. And though God had given directions for how to buy a fellow Jew out of slavery from a foreigner, Nehemiah confronts these leaders with the fact that they were doing just the opposite. Instead of redeeming their fellow Jew from slavery, they were selling their fellow Jews into slavery to foreigners. So clearly what was happening was certain Jews were profiting and becoming wealthy at the expense of fellow Jews and in the process directly disobeying what God had commanded them to do. In fact, look at verse nine again to see what was so bad about these practices. There Nehemiah said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? You know, when you think about who rejoices when God's people suffer, it is clear that it is those who don't follow or love God. Nehemiah knew that it was not a good thing for foreign nations to be able to taunt the Jews for their difficulties because this put a blot on the name of God. God's people were to be distinct, set apart, and really blessed by God. But when they disobeyed and suffered because of it, God's name was actually diminished in the world. By selling fellow Jews into slavery, it gave the enemies the ability to look back and mock the Jews, saying they cannot take care of themselves, and even worse, for the pagan nations to say that God cannot provide for his people. Therefore, when they look at what is happening here, the internal strife threatened to keep the work from being completed, but worse, it meant a bad witness for God. Now, we read where after confronting the issues, Nehemiah told the nobles and the officials to do two things. 
first to stop the wrong practices, but then to return to their fellow Jews the very things that they had taken wrongly. Now, what was the response of the leaders? Thankfully this, they made a commitment before God to make things right. Look at verses 12 and 13. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Now, in a way, what we see here is the officials and the nobles repent. That word repent is not specifically used in the text, but repentance is when you recognize you're doing something wrong and you change. You make things right and begin to do what you should be doing. It is more than just saying, I am sorry. It is a change in action, which clearly took place here because they said, we're going to restore everything and we're going to require nothing. Whatever they had taken, they were going to give back. And any interest they had planned to charge, they were going to waive. And to show the seriousness of this, Nehemiah made them do this in front of the priests so that they would understand the spiritual significance of what they were doing. And understanding the commitment that they needed to make was really to God and not Nehemiah. Nehemiah showed the importance, again, of what was happening when he went to God and basically said, God, if they don't follow through, then deal with them harshly. And the people responded with an amen and praise the Lord. That is just before you read the statement that the people did as they had promised. These people didn't just give lip surface to their repentance. They followed through with what they promised and they made things right, showing that their repentance was genuine. What was avoided was a collapse of the community and a failure to finish the wall. Now, as we consider what happened here in Nehemiah 5, someone's gonna say this to me. We're at the sky, I, I hear that, but what does all that matter to me? Well, let's remember that if God's word has it recorded, it's not recorded just to inform us, it's also recorded to teach us and to guide us. God has principles that he wants us to know and to apply to our lives. We have to be aware that sometimes the greatest threats that we face are from within. Think about this, folks. Our nations, all right? Our nation's biggest enemy will not be other nations. Our nation's biggest enemy will be ourselves. It will be from within. You hear me? As a church, the church's greatest threat is often not those outside the church, but often those within the church walls. Hear me? In your personal life, hear me. The greatest enemy is also not, often not what's outside, but often what is inside, right? So let's consider a few things that we should learn from this text. Number one is this, it's to remember the importance of community. You know, one thing is clear when you read the Bible is that God works in the context of community. He works in the context of his people. You know, we live, especially in America, with such an individualistic mindset that we often forget the importance of community. Don't we? All right. And a place where this should be the strongest is within the church. Now, why do I say that? Because God's word reminds us, not just here in Nehemiah, but throughout his word, that community is important. We often look to individuals in the scriptures and we talk about Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon and Paul and what they did for the Lord. But what we forget is this, is that they served the Lord in the context of community. These individual stories took place within the context of a much larger story. 
For God works in community and it began with the Jews and then expanded to the church and to all believers of Jesus Christ. Community is important because to reach our full potential, we need others. In fact, Paul wrote about this in Ephesians 4 when he said, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held what? Together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working together, makes the body grows so it builds itself up in love. You see this analogy equating believers to a body which is connected and only growing properly as each part fulfills its role is an analogy we need to remember. In fact, throughout the New Testament, we see many references to community aspect of believers' life as we read the phrases one another. In fact, there are approximately 59 one another statements in the New Testament alone. These statements include instructions such as love one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, and many others, all emphasizing the importance of mutual care, support, and love within a Christian community. Folks, if there is a lingering effect that I see from COVID is that we still fail to recapture a sense of community. COVID led many to believe that I don't need others in my life. In fact, many came to believe that being distanced from others is a good thing. And now we're suffering from the lack of community as a whole and especially within the church. We need to remember that community is important and seek to be a part of community and care for others in the community because God works in community. Do you hear me? All right, we need to remember the importance of community, which leads me to the next thing that we can learn in this passage, which is this. We need to avoid the danger of selfish living. I mean, this really makes sense in light of what we just looked at. When we lose a sense of community, what is the natural outflow? All I care about is myself, right? When life becomes about yourself, things happen like they did in Nehemiah 5, where people began to take advantage of each other. You know, in our capitalistic society, we will just chalk some things up to that are really bad things. We'll chalk them up to good businesses, right? I mean, if you can make the money, then make it as much as you can, no matter who you hurt in the process. You see, I, I don't want you to hear me wrong because I believe in capitalism as a whole. However, capitalism for a Christian should not include taking advantage of people. In fact, for a Christian, there should be a part of capitalism that says, how can I use the blessing that God has given me to help take care of others? All right, you hear me? Like we heard before in Philippians 2 where we read, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, there should also be a part of us that is looking out for other people. If not, we will become self-consumed. We will exploit others for our advancement, and if not careful, in the end, you suffer. In fact, I'm reminded of the parable that Jesus told in Luke 12 where he wrote this. He said he told them this parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, folks, says, if we're not careful, we can be so consumed with gaining for ourselves that we forget to invest in the things of God. 
It is if we forget that all the things on this earth are temporary and only the things of God and eternal. And when we focus on ourselves and we forget about others, we have lost the perspective that God wants us to live by. For truly more than living for ourselves, here's what we should do. We should seek to live a life that glorifies God. See, let's not forget, the greatest issue in our text today was that the nobles and the officials had failed to live by God's laws, laws that ultimately were given for their benefit. And when you fail to, li- to study God's word and understand his will and live by it, you are just like these nobles and officials. You're living for yourself. We are called as believers to live differently. Instead of living selfishly, you're called to live a life that glorifies God. Here's how Peter put it in 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for whose own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passion of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, that last verse is so important to me. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Why is that so important? Because folks, guess who rejoices when people in the church fail to live for God? Satan does, yeah, he does, right? And, and also, it is the non-believer, right? It's those outside the church. They, they love to look at those in the church and say, well, see, they're no different than anybody else. They're just as selfish, just as mean, just as crooked as everybody else. That, that in part was what Nehemiah was trying to point out in verse nine when he condemned the actions of the nobles and the officials and the taunts that would come because of these inappropriate actions, See, we should strive as believers to live by a a different set of rules than the world. We should live lives that glorify God, that actually lead God's blessing where the world takes notice and says there is something different about Christians and it's a good thing, right? That's the way it should be. Now, as I make that challenge, I recognize in a way, ready, that truly living for God is a rare thing. Do you believe me? You know, I wish I didn't have to say that, but it's true. Even think about this, okay? If everybody in our community today who goes to church, all right, lives a truly godly life, I'm assuming you're here this morning, so you're one of those, right? If everybody in our community truly lives a godly life, catch this, still only 13% of our population is living a godly life. Does that put you in a minority? I consider 13% a rarity, wouldn't you? I mean, it's definitely not in the majority. See, see, maybe we can look at it and say, hey, 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 you know, our actions need to be different. And, and if they are, here, we're truly going to be a rare thing. And God says, I want you to live different than the world, all right? Be rare. Okay? Live differently. Now, as we think about this morning, though, what we need to see is this last thing that we can learn from Nehemiah. That it, when you look and say, hey, you know, it's, it's, it's a rare thing. It's a rare thing to live for God, so, so it's hard for me to do that, Brother Scott. I get that, but here's what you need to understand. You need to personally take the lead in living for God because here's what can happen. Because truly living for God is on the rare side and we're not more side of things, it become easy to live like everybody else. Whether your motto becomes keeping up with the Joneses or going with the crowd 
or whatever description you want to use, it can be easy to do just what everybody else is doing. Agreed? All right. In fact, I believe there's a great pressure either suddenly or explicitly put on us to go along with the majority. It can be hard to swim against the current. But what I love about Nehemiah is that it didn't matter what everyone else was doing. He personally was going to seek to live for God to the best of his ability. I didn't point this out earlier, but in verse 8, as Nehemiah is confronting the nobles and the officials with their wrong actions, he says this, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that you may be sold. They were silent, or so does, they were silent and could not say a word. See, I'm not exactly who the we are. But Nehemiah and some others had been following God's will and buying their Jewish brothers out of slavery, while the nobles and the officials, on the other hand, were selling Jews into slavery, causing Nehemiah to have more Jews to buy back. Isn't that crazy? All right. That's a terrible thing that's happening. But here's what we cannot overlook. That, that, that Nehemiah wasn't just telling these nobles and officials to live for God. He was setting the example. He was leading the way personally. And I don't have time to read the last part of this chapter this morning, all right? Now, depending on how the Lord leads this week, I may go back and preach the last verses of this chapter next week. We'll see. But in the last part of this chapter, we'll see something about Nehemiah. He, he was given the role of governor. And obviously, as a role of governor, there were some perks that came along with it. So look, look at what he see. Look what we see he says. He said, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governors. In other words, here's what Nehemiah said. All right. There are some perks that come with this job of being governor, but Nehemiah said, no thanks. And he did that because he realized that to do so would really mean hurting the people. And he was not going to have anything to do with that. He personally was demonstrating that I'm not going to live for myself, but instead was going to live for the Lord. He personally took the lead. And folks, let me say this to every one of us. God wants us to do the same. All right. God wants us, all right, to take the lead in living for him. Even if everyone around you is living in a way that is self-consumed and ungodly, you should be determined to lead others in living for God. It is a way you can keep from being a part of the internal threats and instead being a part of rebuilding lives for God. Now, having shared all this, if you're wondering, well, Brother Scott, how, how can I live this way? How can I really do this? Will you live this way by following the example of Jesus and trusting in his strength? I want to give you a, a couple more verses as we prepare to close. First in the gospel, John chapter 3 or 13. In John 13, Jesus shocks his disciples by washing their feet, something that a teacher in that day and time was not expected to do and something that truly caught his disciples off guard. And explaining his act to his disciples, this is what he said. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus simply said, I'm showing you how to live. Follow my example. Then in 1 Peter 2, 21, as Peter is addressing Christians who suffer for doing the right thing, he wrote these words, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Just as Jesus has said, Peter reiterates when he says, Jesus left us an example. We should follow his steps even when it means suffering. How do we live as we're challenged to live? It is by looking to Jesus. Jesus, think about this. Jesus lived in community, did he not? 
all right? When he walked the earth, he didn't go it alone. He surrounded himself with his disciples who were with him constantly. But then we also see him with the crowds of people ministering to them or at times just eating with them or, or teaching them. He valued community. We also see Jesus warned of the dangers of selfish living. He had many teachings on this, but, but, but think about when he himself was tempted. When he found himself in the desert and Satan came to tempt him, every temptation was really about Jesus making things about himself, about him gaining riches and fame. But Jesus continually refused the temptation and instead pointed Satan to the word of God. And the process showed us that what is important is living for God and his glory. Nowhere was this more clearly seen than the night that when Jesus was arrested and he was praying in the garden, knowing that he was about to die, asking the father, if possible, for the cup to be removed. But then praying, Jesus said, praying, God, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus made it clear in that moment that the most important thing for him was living a life that glorifies God. And of course, he personally took the lead. Even when all his followers abandoned him, Jesus stayed the course, allowed himself to be arrested, allowed himself to be hung on a cross where he died for our sins. And in the process, he made life possible for you and for me. But when all others had ran away, Jesus personally took the lead in living for God. In fact, in a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. You see the table set before us. We do this as part of our worship because we celebrate what the Lord has done in community. We celebrate it as a church body. We celebrate that the, the, Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples, and we celebrate the Lord's Supper with believers because it is an opportunity for us to remember what Christ has done and the unity he brings to all who believe. It is a moment to celebrate what Christ has done, but also to celebrate that we are united in Christ Jesus. We also remember in the Lord's Supper that Jesus himself did not live selflessly, but actually lived selflessly as he gave his life for you and me. He gave his life to pay for our sins that we indeed may have life. And in doing so, we know he glorified the Father. It was actually God the Father who gave his son so that we might have life. And so as Jesus carried out the Father's plan, he was living a life that glorified God. And yes, he personally too led in living godly. As I already mentioned, even when all of his followers abandoned him, he still pressed and did what was right, even though the crowds who at one time praised him, saying, Hosanna, changed to shouting, crucify him. Jesus was still willing to do what was right, even when others turned away. And so we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as we have an invitation. And as we do this, I want you to know this morning that as you've listened to this message, God may have spoken to you about something. Maybe you realize today that you... Uh, um, could be an eternal threat, all right, to God's rebuilding plan. Maybe you're living self, selfishly, or maybe you're not really connected to a community of believers. Maybe you've been following the crowd instead of being a leader of living for God. If God has spoken to you and you need to make a decision, as we have this time of invitation, I want you to feel free to come. You can come to this altar and kneel and take that to the Lord and say, God, I need to get this right. Or, or Brother Jacob will be over here, and I'll be over here if you need somebody to pray with or to talk to if you need to, even above all, make a commitment to your life to Jesus by confessing your sin and letting Jesus have control of your life, or you need to, to come again, confess that selfishness or join the church or be a part of a community of believers, any commitment you need to make, we'll be here to help you and make those commitments, all right? Also, as we do the Lord's Supper today, as we sing this song, it's an invitation for all believers to come and take these elements off this table. But here's what I want you to do. If you come with us as a regular attender, uh, listen up real close. We'll do something a little different today. 
Because I want you to come during the invitation and I want you to get these elements. I want you to take them back to your seat. As always, if you need to sit and pray and get your heart right before God, you take a moment and do that. Or if your heart came in right this morning, you're prayed up and you're ready. If you just wanna sing praises to God while you hold those elements, you do that. But here's what I want you to do. Hold on to those elements, wait. Don't take them, okay? Because here's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna take them together as a community of believers, all right? Because we need to be reminded we're in community and sometimes we just need to stop and we're gonna do it as a whole. We're gonna do it together. And so you hold, prepare your heart, all right? However you need to do, pray, sing, whatever you need to do. If you need to make a decision before you pick these elements up, come. You need to pray first, whatever you need to do, all right? But when you get those amounts, you hold them. In a moment, as a body, we're gonna celebrate what the Lord has done and the challenge that he has for our life, all right? You got it? Got it? Let's pray before we sing. God, we come to you in this moment. And again, we just thank you, Lord, for the examples of people like Nehemiah who live for you. And God, I pray that we would take the challenge ourselves to be a people, even if everybody else is going the other direction, that we would be a people that live for you. Because God, what we know, again, the greatest threats that we have are not really external, they're internal. And Father, many times those internal threats are just within us individually. So as we come to this time of invitation, God, speak to our hearts God, if there's something that you want for us to do, a decision to make, a sin to confess, Lord, whatever it is, I pray during this time of invitation, people would make those decisions. God, that we would honor you in this moment and make this invitation truly about you. And so move in our hearts, God, because again, we, we wanna celebrate you today, but first, God, we want you to do business in our own hearts. And so speak to us, I pray. Again, we, as always, God, I wanna give this invitation to you. Let your Holy Spirit have free reign in these moments. Speak, Father. And I truly pray we'll listen and I pray we'll respond. And even if nobody else responds, God, if we're the only one, I pray that we'll do it. Whatever, whatever it is this morning, God, that we'll step out and be obedient to you. So again, bless this time, I pray. As I pray these things, I pray them in Jesus' name, amen.